Hello, and welcome to the presentation by Francis Mirabello from the Princeton class of 1975, entitled Thoughtful Legacy Planning in an Uncertain Environment. Originally presented at Saturday morning of Reunions Weekend on May 29, 2010. My name is Ron Brown. I'm in my 15th year as Director of Gift Planning at Princeton and a proud member of the class of 1972. Our speaker is Frank Mirabello, 75, a nationally known estate planning attorney and good friend of the university's gift planning program. Frank is a partner and the manager of the personal law practice of Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchus in Philadelphia and serves as a member of Princeton University's Plan Giving Advisory Committee. Frank graduated from Princeton with a BSc in Civil Engineering with highest honors and was a member of Princeton's fencing team. When he graduated, Frank was awarded the Class of 1916 Cup for having the highest academic standing of any graduating Princeton athlete. Frank's law practice focuses on estate planning, closely held business planning, including succession planning and shareholder agreements, and federal income, estate, and gift taxation. Frank also has experience with charitable trusts, foundations, and nonprofit organizations, family law, international tax, and real estate planning. Frank and his wife, Mariana, are also the proud parents of Paul Mirabello from the class of 2008. And of course, Frank was celebrating his 35th reunion with the class of 1975 on the day of his presentation. I am delighted to introduce Frank Mirabello. When I agreed to do this, uh, you know, about a year ago, I figured, well, you know, Congress would get its act together, we'd have interesting things to talk about, you know, I'd have, oh, you know, and like, what was I thinking? You know, here it is, you know, May, and they still don't have their acting. So what would everybody like to talk about? I mean, we have like no rules, you know, rules, no, you know, no rules at all. And um, nobody really knows what the rules will be. Just again. Um, I, I like and I met with a family last week, it's a longtime client of mine who's a major developer. And I said, think about it as if, you know, tomorrow they repealed all the building codes. Just repealed them all. And they said, we're going to adopt new building codes. And we probably will make them retroactive. We're not sure. We'll pro and we don't know what the rules will be. And even if we knew, we won't tell you. Like, would you build a building? I mean, and knowing you might have to tear it down tomorrow, and, and in a sense, that's where we are right now. So I want to spend a little time, you know, where we are and, and some of the emergencies we're facing because of that. And then, you know, I'll take you into sort of the planning stage, which, of course, will have to make some assumption about what the rules are going to be uh, when you're planning your, your, your financial plan. So where are we right now? Well, in December, right, the... The state tax was 45%, and there was a $3.5 million death exemption. And the gift tax was 45%, and there was a $1 million lifetime gift exemption, and there was a 45% generation skipping tax. That was December 31st of 09. Right now, we have no death tax. Right? Now, problem is the only way to take advantage of that is dying. That's not a planning opportunity we generally recommend to our clients, but it's there. Uh, so we have no death tax, we have no generation skipping tax, 
And we still have a gift tax at 35% with a $1 million lifetime exemption. That, that's where we are. If Congress does nothing, on January 1, all of the pre-Bush tax rules come back, and the estate tax will go back to 55% with a $1 million death exemption. The gift tax will go back to 55% with a $1 million exemption, and the generation skipping tax will come back to 55% if they do nothing, which it seems more and more likely they're not doing anything. I mean, there's a great debate, you know, every week I get another, every other day I get another email from, you know, one of our people lurking in the hallways of Congress to try to figure out, you know, what people are talking about. And the big problem is, you know, I think they probably like to go back to what it was last year, 45% rate and a $3.5 million exemption. The Republicans would prefer to see it more like a 35% rate and a $5 million exemption. But either of those things, the problem is, right now, it's going to be 55% and a $1 million exemption. Right? So if you drop it to 45 and a $3.5 million exemption, that's a revenue loss, right? We're not allowed to have revenue losses unless you find a way to pay for it, right? Well, there's, well, that means raising taxes on something else to pay for that reduction in the estate tax. And so far, they have not been able to reach an agreement as to how they're going to do that. The hope had been that they would work this out last year, right? So if they had worked it out last year, they could have taken the revenue increase from this year, when the tax is zero, to offset a more rational proposal going forward. But of course, they didn't do that. So we're halfway into this year. Obama's proposed budget is on the assumption that they will fix it and make it retroactive. Right? There is no constitutional prohibition against retroactive tax increases. Right? I mean, people forget that Clinton's very first bill was a retroactive increase of the death tax. It had gone down from 55 to 50 percent in Reagan's last year, that January 1. Clinton got elected. His first bill in June moved it back retroactively to 55 percent. So they, they could do that. Uh, which obviously, it's my building analogy, creates a great deal of uncertainty as to what to do when you don't know whether or not the rules that are in the code or not in the code are going to be the ones that ultimately you'll have to follow. Well, what are some of the consequences of our current state of there being no tax right now for estate plans that many of our clients have? For, for the typical estate plan, which I will take you through, there's a chart in there, you'll see it probably doesn't make any difference. I mean, most typical estate plans for a married couple take whatever the tax-free amount is and they put it in a family trust for spouse and descendants. And often the spouse is the trustee and controls those assets. Those resources are available to the spouse. Everything above the tax-free amount typically goes into a marital trust just for the spouse. That's deductible, and you pay no tax at the first death. I call that the sort of typical plan. Well, here, where there's an unlimited tax-free amount, because there's no tax, everything would end up in that family trust. All the resources are still available to the spouse. You really don't need a change in that circumstances. But we have clients who 
you know, particularly wealthier clients who said, well, you know, I'd like to leave the tax-free amount directly to my children or directly to my grandchildren, who they probably like more than their kids anyway. So, I, you know, I'd like to leave the tax-free amount, you know, to my grandchildren and leave everything above the tax-free amount, obviously, to a marital trust for my spouse. Well, that plan's got to be looked at because right now that would mean everything would go to the kids or the grandchildren and nothing would go to the spouse. Right? That's not what that client probably intended. They had a dollar amount in mind. Or with many clients where leave the tax-free amount to my descendants and leave, you know, the, the balance to charity. Again, they, you know, do they really intend in that case to cut out charity entirely under these circumstances? Um, and you know, that's a question that needs to be asked because they had in mind a certain dollar amount that was going to go to their kids and the balance would go to charity. Now everything would go to the kids and those philanthropic objectives are not going to get satisfied. Or, you know, we have many clients, and we'll cover this, you know, later in the presentation, that, um, you know, have in mind a certain amount uh, to kids, a certain amount to charity, they have philanthropic objectives, and they've set up those priorities in their estate plan. Well, you know, we have to ask the question, you know, if basically the government was subsidizing 45% of your charitable gift, because if you hadn't given it to charity, your family would have gotten you know, 55% of those assets, and you'd rather leave $100 to your favorite charity than 55 to your kids and 45 to the government, Will do you have the same philanthropic objective if you could leave $100 to your kid? It's a question that needs to be asked of those clients as they analyze that. And many of them say, no, I still have the same objective, and even though the government's not subsidizing it, I want to do it. Others say, well, you know, these, are, these philanthropic objectives are particularly important. I want to do that. But if I could leave more money tax-free to my family, let's do it. So those, that's the analysis we're, we're going through with clients now as we look through their plans. But as you'll see, for the most part, most estate plans aren't really affected by this change in the, in the tax rule. And, you know, some very wealthy people have died already this year. I mean, there's one guy I wish I represented in Texas who was, you know, worth $6 billion. Um, you know, that's a lot of revenue if they don't make it, you know, retroactive. On the gifting side, right now we have a 35% gift tax. Right? It's the lowest gift tax we've, you know, ever had. So you might say, well, this is the year to make gifts. Well, the question is, you know, they might make it retroactive. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to, to talk about the, you know, death tax, um, you know, and, and can people complain if you make it retroactive? I mean, you shouldn't die in reliance on the fact that there was no tax. I mean, I suppose you could, but it's not a common occurrence. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to argue, you know, they made it retroactive. You take a transaction where you're relying on, on something in the tax code that the, the rate is 35%, you know, will they go back and say, you changed your mind, you know, 45% or it's 55%. They could do it constitutionally, whether they will or not, nobody really knows. I mean, you have a number of congressmen who have been saying, you know, just plan on it. We plan to make it, you know, retroactive. And Obama's budget says we're assuming it's going to be retroactive. So if you've got a client who says, well, you know, it's only 35% gift tax this year, now's the year to do it, 
you really have to say, all right, that's fine, but would you do it if it were 45%? Or would you do it if it were 55%? If you would, then it's a no-brainer. You might as well do it this year and take a shot at it. Um, it's, it's hard. The harder question is gifts to grandchildren. Because, uh, to go for an example, I mean, you know, when the tax was 50% and the generation skipping tax was 50%, to get $100 to a grandchild, if you've used up all your lifetime's exemptions and so forth, cost $125 in tax. All right? So every $100 you gave to a grandchild, you had to write you know, $50 generation skipping tax check and a $75 gift tax check. So it costs $125 to give $100 to a grandchild. This year, one costs $35. So again, it's a huge advantage this year of making fairly large gifts to grandchildren. But would you do it if you had to write the $125 check? Because I, I can't guarantee anybody that having done it, the government won't go along and make it retroactive, uh, and you're stuck suddenly having to pay a lot larger amount than you thought. Um, the generation skipping tax creates a whole series of problems here, because we have no generation skipping tax right now. Just, just to make sure you all sort of understand what that is, I mean, we've, you know, since the First World War, had an estate tax and a gift tax, it's sort of the toll charge to move assets from you out of your estate to whomever. So you die, you pay the toll charge, it's a estate tax, you want to do it during your lifetime, the toll charge is a gift tax. And we've always had some tax-free amount that you could do, either die with or give away free, but beyond that you paid that toll charge. And until the mid-80s, that's all we had. And then Congress decided, well, you know, what are people doing? Well, what we did for all wealthy families is Whenever we paid that toll charge, the gift tax or the estate tax, we never really gave the money to anybody. We always gave it to trusts. And nobody really owned that trust property, so that when a beneficiary died, it wasn't sitting in the beneficiary's bank account, so it wasn't subject to the estate tax. And they didn't own it, so that it wasn't subject to the gift tax. The trust just went on, and it, you know, the next generation were beneficiaries, and there was no tax. And in the mid-80s, Congress said, enough is enough. If we're going to have a an estate tax when somebody dies, we want a tax when every generation dies. And they adopted a third system of tax called the generation skipping tax, which said if you create a trust for your son when, and you paid a gift tax or you paid an estate tax to get it started, when your son dies and it goes to your grandchildren, because it's going down another generation, we're going to take a slice of that trust at whatever the highest rate is. So last year it was 45%. And to get that through Congress, they had to take 99% of the people out of it. And the way they did, they did two things. One, they, they grandfathered all existing trusts. So our good friends, Mr. Rockefeller and Mr. Kennedy, it was very easy for them to vote for this because it didn't affect any of their families well because their advisors had locked up all the money in these long-term trusts that were grandfathered. The other thing they did is they gave everybody an exemption from the tax. So uh, just like there's a death exemption of three and a half million, in December there was a generational exemption of three and a half million. 
and you could use that exemption to apply to any trust you created and to the extent everything you put in that trust was covered by that generational exemption you told the IRS you were using it as you funded that trust uh, the old rules applied and you can go from generation to generation so you'll see as we go through a typical estate plan that preserving that generational exemption is enormously valuable for your kids, for your grandchildren someday, because it allows that wealth, no matter how much it grows, to avoid the tax system in the future. Well, again, we don't have a generation skipping tax right now. So if we make a big gift to a trust and Congress does nothing, it comes back on January 1. Well, like, what happens to that trust? Is it exempt from the tax because the tax didn't exist? Or is it suddenly subject to the tax in January because you had no exemption to apply to that trust because there is no exemption exists right now? Nobody knows the answers to those questions. So just like building the building, it's pretty hard to have somebody build a plan when you have no idea what the rules are going to be. So I'd say in general, we're fixing plans that clearly don't comply with people's desires under this new regime as to who gets what. Uh, and for the most part, the rest is sort of wait and see, because we just don't you know, have much confidence in, in where things will be. So that's, that's the predicament Congress has put us in. Uh, so, so what about, you know, taking that as a given, you know, what do we do for planning for people? Well, first of all, we've got to make some assumption, I think it's a valid assumption, that we will have a new estate tax regime. As I said, if they do nothing, we're going to have the pre-Bush regime of 55% and a million dollar exemption come January 1. My best guess is, at worst, we'll end up with you know, a $3.5 million exemption we had in December and a 45% rate. I think that's what the assumption most people are operating on. And the plan I sketched out here makes that assumption. Could be wrong, you know, who knows. But for illustration purposes and talking to clients, we have to assume something. So I, I'd say in putting together an estate plan for clients, I, there are two basic stages in it. The first is dealing with that client's current asset situation and putting in place a, a, a state-of-the-art documents that accomplish what they want to accomplish. And we'll talk, talk about some of those objectives. Making sure there's liquidity to pay this outrageous debt tax when it, when it comes to. Um, and then provide for the client's philanthropic objectives, because many of our clients come in, they have particular priorities for their family, but there are some philanthropic things they want to accomplish, and our job is to get those accomplished as, cheap, as cheaply as possible. As in, in other words, to get the government to subsidize as much of that philanthropic objective as we can. And, and the second stage is, is dealing with future wealth accumulations, because uh, that's where the core of the problem tends to be sort of going forward. So what I'd like to do is um, if, you, if you look in your outline, the first exhibit, I think it's like the uh, fourth page in, uh, this little chart there that you'll find. Um, maybe it's a little bit further in. It's, it's uh, this one here. Exhibit A. Exhibit A. Exhibit A. Um, so... What I want to do is sort of take you through this plan so you see 
the, the base plan on which we overlay philanthropy, which we'll spend some time talking about. Uh, and, the, and the first thing here, in, in terms of constructing a plan for a client, is, you know, what's the basic, how is, it, how is the estate plan accomplished? What's the basic structure? And there are two ways to implement an estate plan like this. One is you have a will. And the will says, you know, when you die, this is how things get, all the instructions are in the will, this is who gets what, uh, who the executors and trustees are, and how that executor distributes the assets. Right? That's the, sort of probably the most common way. The problem with that for most of our clients is it's a very public document. Right? When someone dies, a will gets probated, that just means it gets filed with the court, that's a public document. Anybody can go in and take a look at it. The executor has to file an inventory of all the assets in that estate. That's also a very public document. So for our clients, the thought that when the will gets probated, what typically happens in most probate courts is the clerks all have you know, their favorite guy at the newspaper. And when something gets filed that either they recognize the name where the number of a the asset number on the inventory is above a certain amount, they pick up the phone, they call their buddy at the newspaper, and the next day there's, you know, the guy comes in, makes copies of all the documents, and there's a nice article in the newspaper about it, and the clerk gets a nice basket at Christmas or something. That's, you know, that's like, you know, pretty hard to most of our clients. One, they don't want people to know what they have, and they certainly don't want to know what their beneficiary, they want the world to know what the beneficiaries are going to own after a death. And for business owners, it's particularly a problem because the estate may very well be, you know, trying to sell some of those assets, and we will have gotten, you know, appraisers to put the lowest number they could with a straight face on those assets to keep the tax liabilities down. You know, at the same time you're negotiating with buyers, I mean, if we're negotiating a buyer, the first thing we do is to see whether or not, you know, well, what did they get it appraised at? Um, so it's, it's not a good scenario. The alternative is to use a revocable living trust. It has exactly the same instructions that the will has. It can be changed at any point. It can be amended at any point. It has absolutely no tax consequences. But to the extent you move assets during your lifetime into that trust so that they're titled in that trust, they're not subject to probate. And they're not subject to public disclosure. And the will becomes a very simple document that just says, when I die, I leave everything to my trust. Right? So people can't tell who gets the property. Any assets that have already been retitled into this trust don't get shown on the inventory. So maybe the inventory shows some bank accounts and some personal property or whatever, but it creates you know, a level of privacy that's important to most of our clients. So changes from our standpoint doesn't cost any more to do one or the other. I mean, the revocable trust looks identical to the will. It just has a different front and different back. Uh, the client is typically the trustee, can change it, amend it. It do doesn't change their world in any way, so it's a, it's a privacy tool. So that's the structure we use for virtually all of our clients. Okay. So, revocable. Revocable. Alright, so, alright, now once you've gone by the structure, you know, what are the general obje you know, objectives of most estate plans? 
Right. Well, I'd say one, it's you know never waste the tax-free amount. I mean, if the government's going to give you a certain amount tax-free, you never want to waste that. Uh, you want to put off paying the taxes generally as long as possible. Right? Uh, although who knows, maybe they'll go up and be better off paying early. But and we always set up documents where you have your choice to pay early in order to lock in lower rates. Never waste that generational exemption because that's an enormously valuable asset for, then for your kids and for your grandchildren. Uh, and finally, and we'll see this is important, you know, do what planning, state tax and creditor planning, that you can for the next generation as part of your plan. Because there are incredible opportunities to do planning for your beneficiaries that they cannot do for themselves as part of an estate plan. So let, let's look at this chart. Um, the first thing I want to sort of point out is most of our clients carry some level of life insurance. Okay? And as a general rule, life insurance is always owned in an irrevocable trust. Okay? Nobody should own a policy in their own name payable to a beneficiary. Right? Because you know, insurance is income tax-free. It's not necessarily death tax-free. So if someone owns a policy uh, and dies owning it, and that policy gets paid to whomever the beneficiary is, I have to list the proceeds of that insurance on their death tax return as an asset, just as if it were money in the bank. They might say, well, you know, my spouse is the beneficiary and that's deductible. That's fine. I list it on the death tax return. I take a deduction because it got paid to the spouse. But, you know, the spouse has that money in the bank now. Spouse dies, that's, that insurance is going to be part of the taxable estate. In contrast, if you have an irrevocable trust, and the trust is the owner and beneficiary of the policy, it's not part of anybody's estate. So, insurer dies, in this case it's a $2 million policy, the $2 million comes into that insurance trust, there is no tax at the client's death or at the spouse's death. All of those proceeds end up going uh, to the family tax-free. And insurance is expensive enough. If you're in a taxable estate and you wind up paying 45 or 50 percent of that to the government, you just double the cost of that insurance. So insurance is typically always owned in an irrevocable trust. You make gifts to that trust to cover the premiums over time, uh, and you keep that out of the tax system. So in this, in this example, in this client, client's got net worth of $10 million, has a $2 million policy. If he had owned that $2 million policy, you know, for tax purposes, his estate would have been $12 million. And we're in a 45% bracket here under my assumptions that this is back to, turn back the clock to 2009, we would have paid you know, $900,000 more in tax if he just owned that policy. And, you know, people think, well, I don't have that large an estate, but when you start adding everything up, houses, personal property, investments, your life insurance, you know, all of that, suddenly, you know, you're worth more dead than alive. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a lot more there than you really expected. So, so that we always segregate that insurance in a, in a separate box. So now this client dies with $10 million. Right? Three and a half million of it is tax-free. Right? We'll assume he didn't use any of that up during his lifetime. So we set aside that three and a half million in a family trust 
the, of the three boxes side by side, the family trust is the right two. You'll see that adds up to three and a half million. Well, if we don't do something with the remaining six and a half million, we would be paying tax on it. Well, one, there are two things you can do that are deductible. You can give it to a spouse or you can give it to charity. This client's married, client puts it in a, in a marital trust for the spouse. Right? No tax at the first death. Right? That's you know, one of the objectives. Now, we talked about the generation skipping tax and preserving that exemption. And we always want to do that because, as we'll see, that creates an enormously valuable asset for the children someday. So we're always looking to use that exemption the best way possible. So in this example, during this couple's lifetime, they put $200,000 in the insurance trust to pay premiums. Right? And as they were doing that, we were telling the government we're using this, of this couple's generational exemption, we were using it as we paid the premiums. So they paid $200,000 of premiums, we used $200,000 of their exemption. Right? Now what, what happened to that exemption? If, as I said, if everything that goes into a trust is covered by the generational exemption, you get to play with that trust the old game that the Kennedys and the Rockefellers play. And so what happened? That 200,000 of gifts at death turned into $2 million of proceeds. Well, the whole $2 million of proceeds are protected from the generational tax. So you can see that insurance trust has, is shaded, has the crosshatches in it, because that's exempt from this new system of taxation. So we leveraged $200,000 of premiums into $2 million of exemption. Well, that meant when this client died, assuming he and the spouse split gifts, right? he used up $100,000 of his exemption, the spouse would have used up 100000 of hers. Uh, and so when he died, he only had $3 million four of his generational exemption left. So you can see the right family trust is, is cross-hatched. It segregates his $3.4 million of exemption. We have $100,000 that's free of estate tax that we segregate and we put everything else in the marital trust. Now the spouse dies. Right? Assuming the spouse had no other assets, the spouse would have their own $3.5 million of tax-free amount um, and, and would pay tax on the balance. So that marital trust is $6.5 million. There's no free lunch, right? We took a deduction at the first death for the marital trust. That trust is then taxable when the survivor dies. The survivor has their own tax-free amount, three and a half million, that leaves three million subject to tax. At 45%, it's a million three fifty in death taxes. So that goes over to our friendly government to be spent wisely, and you've got what's left to go to the family. Now that spouse still also has their own generational exemption that they hadn't used. We want to preserve that, so we segregate it. So you'll see what ultimately happened is uh, for each child, each child ends up with two trusts. One trust that's exempt from the generational tax and one trust that's not. Now let's talk about um, the, the structure of these trusts for the kids. Because th this is probably one of the most overlooked issues with, with most clients' estate plans. You know, in the old days, what most of our documents would look like, 
and I bet most of your documents look like. You create trusts for the kids, and the trusts probably say, well, you know, give them half when they're 30 and give them the other half when they're 40. Uh, so if they blow the first chunk, you know, maybe they'll come to their senses and they'll have time and they won't blow the second part. Okay? We never do that anymore. Right? Because what we found was when clients really thought about what they were concerned with for their children, uh, at some point it should be their money. Right, because if they haven't figured it out by age 40, they're probably never going to figure it out, and you know, they might as well have it. Yeah. But what they are worried about are creditors and spouses. Right. And once a trust ends, and the assets go into the beneficiary's hot little hands, right, if they run a lawyer down the, the next day and get sued for a gazillion bucks, those assets are gone. Right. We know in most states, although the inheritance is separate property, in most states all the future income and appreciation is marital property. So if the kid inherits their trust at age 30 and gets divorced at age 50, you know, that 20 years of income and appreciation on that inheritance is going to be marital property and half of that's going to go out to the outlaw. So that's generally, you know, not something that's attractive to our clients at that point. Okay? So, in contrast, if things stay in trust, right, they're not subject to creditor claims, because trust assets are not subject to the liabilities of the beneficiaries, and they're not, it's not marital property for divorce purposes. So the trust structure provides an enormous protection for the beneficiary. They can't do for themselves. You can't say, well, this is great. What I'll do is I'll put my assets in a trust for myself and protect them. No, we won't let you do that. If you put assets in a trust for your own benefit, they're still subject to your creditor claims, and no divorce court is going to allow you to segregate that as marital property when you are a beneficiary. But if somebody does it for you, those protections are there. On the other hand, most of our clients don't want their kids trusted up for life. They don't want them to have to, you know, grovel to, you know, Uncle Joe when they want to buy a Ferrari someday. I mean, it's supposed to be their money at some point, and, you know, they should have it. So what we'll do is at the age at which the client would otherwise have given the kid the money, whether that's 30, 35, 40, the age in which they would other, otherwise, or immediately if the kids are older, we let the kids be trustee of their own trust. Now, this gives the beneficiary the best of both worlds. Gives them control over the asset as trustee, but provides them a structure to protect themselves from third parties. Right? That's an enormously valuable structure to kids. As you know, I mean, you know, we're the most litigious society in the world. You can't know whether you have enough liability insurance, and unfortunately, you know a high percentage of marriages don't succeed. So that having a structure that provides that protection is, is apart from tax, the tax savings and everything, one of those important objectives of these estate plans. Now, I tell clients, this is the plan for people who would otherwise give the money to the kids. Because, you know, when you're sole trustee of your own trust, right, there's nothing to prevent you from doing really stupid things. I mean, it's your money, effectively. You don't have to go to anybody either on investment decisions or distribution decisions. What we typically do is bring the kid in as co-trustee at some young, earlier age, five or ten years earlier, 
and with an additional trustee to give them some period of education. Learning how to manage money, deal with professionals, set budgets, work with an investment advisor, work with the accountant. Because the biggest disasters we see are kids who come into a lot of money, have had no preparation, no mentoring as to how to manage that. They think it's you know, more money than they could ever spend, and we all know it's money isn't, it doesn't go as far as you'd think. Um, and having a co-trustee for some period of time that can introduce them to investment management, budgeting, and so forth. So we typically have them come in as co-trustee, and then at some later age, give them the right to remove their co-trustee and serve alone. And we have a lot of these trusts in administration. And we found some you know, very interesting things about this structure. Uh, one is that most kids, most of the kids take, virtually take nothing out of these trusts. Because when you think of it, the only thing you need to take money out of a trust for are consumables. Right? Food, clothes, vacations, things where you've spent the money, and other than gaining weight, you don't really have anything to show for it. Right? And we hope by the time the kids are in their 30s or 40s, they have jobs and careers, and they pay for their consumables out of those earnings. Everything else you can think of is really an investment, not an expense. Right? And investments are done inside the trust. So you want to buy a sure house? The trust buys and owns the house. You want to start a new business? The trust funds and owns the business. The kids who are well advised say, this is great. I have this box we call a trust. So long as I leave the capital in this box, nobody else can get to it. Uh, and I can use the box to make the same kinds of investments that I would have made. Sure. Because, because it's an investment decision. With the, now, the kid can't contribute to the trust. Well, I mean, the, the kid's running the business, getting paid a salary for doing that. Uh, but to the extent the trust commits the capital and owns the asset, that asset and its appreciation is out of, out of the system. So the kids who are well advised basically never take anything out. Now, sure, we have... You know, some kids who are doing what we'd all view as socially redeemable things, they're artists, they're social workers, they're high school teachers, they're things that are important to society, which we unfortunately don't reward particularly well financially by society. And so, yes, they will supplement their consumable lifestyle with distributions from the trust, but generally, in the scheme of things, that's sort of peanuts. The big ticket items are all really investment decisions, and those are done inside the trust. The second thing we found is that many of the kids, although they could at any time, don't remove their co-trustees. If you've selected the right mentor, the right person to bring them along, many of them like that relationship. They know that there's somebody there watching and looking at the investment reports. When their best buddy comes to them with this great idea, they can you know, say, well, you're going to have to convince my you know, co-trustee. It sounds sexist. A lot of the women don't remove their co-trustee, and I think that's to provide an excuse. So when their husband says, I got this great idea for a widget factory, and if I only had a million dollars of your trust money, you know, we'd be rich. It'd be very hard to say, you're out of your mind. We're not doing this. You know, if you got a co-trustee, you can say, great idea, but you're going to have to convince Joe. And then, you know, she calls up Joe and says, over my dead body, we're not doing this. You know, and somebody else is the bad guy. So um, this is the general platform 
we put in generally, you know, for all our clients. Because we, we developed it originally for the sort of billionaire clients who felt their kids would always be targets, uh, either gold diggers or litigation or whatever. And what we found, it was in fact much more important for our more modest clients. I mean, if you got $100 million and you lose half, you'll still be able to muddle by. But if you got a $2 million asset base, and you've had the wrong, you know, you're a doctor and you've had an oops and with the wrong person, that's going to be a life-changing event. I assume that we're talking about Uncle Joe, Well, I mean, it varies with every family. I, I happen to believe that most clients can find the, the right individual to act in that mentoring uh, program than having to turn to a corporate fiduciary. Sometimes it's a team of an individual and a corporate fiduciary. Um, it varies with each situation, but most likely that mentor is somebody with friend of the family, uh, business associate, uh, family member, uh, because you know what you want to instill in the kid is both financial responsibility and a sense of stewardship. You know to move these assets down to the next generation. So once you set up that structure, one of the other benefits of it is, you know, these assets aren't really owned by the kid. They're owned by the trust. Right? If the trust had ended at age 40 and it was sitting in the kid's bank account, now all of those assets are part of the kid's estate, and he's got to deal with his own estate tax planning because it's now sitting in his account. If it's in a trust, it's not part of his estate. Now, it may be subject to generation skipping tax if it goes down a generation, but if you look at this chart, what we did for each of these kids in this case is we have a generation skipping trust of four million four and a trust of nine twenty five that's not generation exempt, right? That is subject to that new system. Now why do we put it in two trusts? We put it in two trusts because if the kid needs money, which trust is he going to take it from? He's going to take it from the you know, 925 trust because he knows when he dies there's going to be a toll charge on that trust. The 4 million four, there's going to be no toll charge on that. No matter how much that trust grows during the kid's lifetime, it's all going to go tax-free to his kids. So we want to, we're building tax efficiency for the next generation. If we had just left this all to them at age 40, in this case, the whole $5 million and change would be sitting in the kid's own estate. You know, all he's got is a $3.5 million exemption, uh, and now he's in his own tax posture. Here, he's still got his $3.5 million exemption to deal with the assets he accumulates personally during his lifetime, but he's now got an account a four million four in this example, that no matter how much he grows that during his lifetime through all the investment strategies, he doesn't have to worry about estate planning with that. It's all gonna go tax-free to his kids. So that's the you know basic structure these days that a sort of state-of-the-art uh, plan looks like. And as you can see, it accomplishes all those objectives you started out with. You, you say you make sure your three million five isn't wasted. Right? You put the tax off as long as possible. Here it's not paid until the second death. And you do planning for the kids that they would not otherwise be able to do for themselves. Right? And at the same time, you can, in a sense, you can put them in control of those assets. Right? 
So that's typically stage, you know, one of the planning. Stage two of the planning is, all right, well, we know what the problem is here. You know, we've got a million three fifty. Ultimately, we're going to have to pay to the government. We're not really happy about that. You know, if you have illiquid assets, at least we've got two million of insurance to be able to write the check to the government. Uh, but, you know, what's going to happen? Over time, you know, that asset base is going to continue to increase. And dealing with that is an important component uh, of any plan. So usually, you know, the first thing we talk about with clients is, you know, in, in beginning a gifting program. And there's various levels of gifting. Um, there, you know, annual exclusion gifts, you know, you can give $13,000 to as many people as you want. A married couple can give 26 and give it to all your children, your grandchildren, you give it to my kids, you know, anybody you want. And that's out of the system. It's not a taxable gift. Right? So if you look at this plan, at this client, every $26,000 gift this couple makes ultimately saves that family you know, close to $13,000 a toll charge. That's real money you know, if you look at all the children and grandchildren. In addition, you can pay tuition to wonderful institutions like this, provided you pay it directly to the school, and you can pay medical expenses, including medical insurance, provided you pay it directly. So many of our clients who are in a you know, reduced to toll charge mode and feeling generous, you know, are on a program where they do the full 26 each year, they pay all the medical expenses, they pay all the tuition bills, and every single time they write one of those checks, the government is in a sense paying 45, or they do nothing, 55% of it next year. Beyond that, everybody has a $1 million lifetime exemption. Right? So, you know, now, if you use that during your lifetime, it uses up some of your death exemption. So there's no pure savings like the, the um, um, annual exclusion gifts, the, the 26000 But what it does do is it moves all the future appreciation and income off of that million dollars, or two million if you're a married couple, out of the estate. So if you do nothing, that two million will be sitting in you know, your estate. It'll be growing, it'll be earning, and when you die, all that earning and all that growth is sitting in there to be taxed. If you move that over during your lifetime, all that future growth and earnings out of the system. Beyond that, if you go beyond the 26, you go beyond the million, two million for a married couple, you go beyond that, you start paying gift tax. So, well, why would anybody want to do that? You'd said, why don't you put off the tax as long as possible? Because paying gift tax is probably the biggest loophole in the entire system. Because Let's say the tax rate were 50%. Just makes the math easier. Right? Uh, when you die, you pay death tax on everything, including the tax money. Right? So if you got $10 million and you're in a 50% bracket and you die, $5 million goes to the government, $5 million goes to the kids. Right? Now, some people would say that's 100% tax. Right? To give them $5 million of death, I had to pay $5 million in tax. Right? Because when you pay that 50%, it's on everything, including the tax money. If you came to me with $10 million and you said, I'm willing to part with this money, right, you could give away $6,700,000. million. Seven. The 50% tax on $6,700,000 is $3,300,000. Right? $10 million. So what happened? Because you don't pay gift tax 
on the gift tax you pay. You only pay it on what you gave away. If you do it during your lifetime, the kids end up with six million seven instead of five million dollars. Right. So it's a, you know the effective rate drops to thirty-three percent, not fifty percent, because it's tax exclusive. It's such a big loophole that there is a special rule that says if you do that and you die within three years of having made that gift, they take the gift tax you paid, that third three million three is indicated, and they make believe it's still in your estate. Right? They put it back in your estate. Well, the 50% tax on the three million three is a million seven. You're right back at paying five million. That's to prevent people on their deathbed saying, should have listened to Frank all these years, and they start whipping off checks. It's too late at that point. You know, you have to plan, plan ahead. But, you know, we have many clients who want to take advantage of that, you know, they're feeling pretty good, and they're going to make it for three years, and moving assets out at a much lower effective rate is, in, and if we were talking about a 35% rate this year uh, on a tax-exclusive basis, you can think how much of more of a savings that is than dying with that same capital. Of course, it requires writing a check to the government right now, which nobody particularly appreciates doing. And, you know, in the prior years, people were a little worried because that math all works if you assume there's a death tax. Right? If you could plan to die in 2010, you, know, you would have gotten no benefit from having, uh, you know, made that gift tax because you could have kept the asset, died this year, and, and do it. Nobody, you know, nobody expects the death tax at this stage will go away permanently. I mean, I don't think anybody believed that Bush could actually get it to be permanent uh, and that we're, we're going to be stuck with it long term. And that's, so I suspect that, you know, the gift planning, particularly in December, I mean, it's a little tricky to do it now, right? Because you made a big gift now and paid 35%, but died before the end of the year. Wouldn't have been a good bet, right? But, you know, my guess is that the last couple of weeks in December, there are going to be a lot of really big gifts made just to take advantage of, of the 35%. And again, whenever we do gifts, we never do them outright. Right? For all the same reasons that we described of creating trust for beneficiaries under the will, we do exactly the same thing for gifting. So no gifts are done outright. They're all done in these lifetime trusts. If the kids are older and they're responsible and you would otherwise give them the money, We'll create a trust for the kid, we'll let the kid be their own trustee, and we'll put the money in the trust account to provide all of those long-term protections for that family. Okay, so that's the, the gifting scenario. Uh, the, the next scenario as part of the stage two is, you know, how do you take the government out as a partner in your life? I mean, the way I explain it to most of my business owner clients is this system's very simple. They and their spouse have the government as a 50% partner in everything that they do. And what the partnership agreement says is when the two of them die, we have to buy their partner out, and the partner gets to choose the price. Right? That's the estate tax system. You build wealth, you die, we have to buy the government out of those assets, we fight with them over what things are worth, they have a hell of a lot more leverage than we have in that fight and resources, uh, but that's the deal. Now, if you had that partnership agreement with the guy across the street 
right, who never put a penny into your business, never had any capital at risk, never worked a day in your business, right, and you now had a new idea right, to grow well, would you do it in that partnership with the guy across the street? No, you'd be up every night trying to figure out how you were going to screw him out of the next deal. That's, that's estate planning. That's all we're doing. We're saying we're going to build wealth, right? but we don't want to have to share half that wealth with the government, you know, who, for most of my clients' view, hasn't contributed a hell of a lot to help them build that wealth. In fact, they put virtually every roadblock they could uh, in the way of building that wealth. So that's really the core of stage two estate planning. So, very simple. I can take right now, any asset a client owns and move all the growth in excess of 3.4% out of their estate tax-free. Very simple. Right? Do you want to do that? I mean, you know, that's the core economic question. Right? Do you, you know, are you rich enough so that if your estate personally stays at this level plus a 3.4% return, are you willing to have the excess return accumulate over here outside this partnership with the government, outside the tax system? Right? I never assume the answer to that question. You know, I got clients who are worth, you know, four or five million dollars, and they'll do everything we tell them to do. They'll do their annual gifting. They'll use these strategies to shift appreciation. They'll be damned if they see that number that goes shooting off to the government higher than it has to be. In their own minds, they have enough financial security at the current level, and they're happy to do that. I have other clients, you know, worth $100 million, and you never know, you might get sick, and I can't, you know. They're just not rich enough. I mean, it, in their own personal, it's a mental state. You know, they just don't feel secure enough. I can tell them until I'm blue in the face in their financial, you can't possibly spend all this money. You know, you can't spend all the income you're earning. But, you know, that they don't feel financial. So I never assume whether people are ready to take these steps. And what we're also finding is that one of the core motivations is not only the fact that we want to reduce the tax going forward right, and not have the government as a factor. The other motivating thing we're seeing now is that people live a long time. Right? And if kids are going to inherit, they're going to be pretty old. Right. Chances are one of the parents will live to life expectancy and the kids will be in their 60s. Right. And most of our clients at some point would like to see some resources set aside so when the time is right they can be made available to the kids so they can live and their grandchildren who I said they probably like more anyway can live you know more comfortable lives uh, and to, to share some of those resources. But if you wait until that moment in time to set those resources aside, it's very expensive to do. We have this gift tax. You can't wake up one morning and say, you know, it would be nice if each of the kids had a couple of million dollars so they could be in a nicer house, not have to worry about saving for college for the grandchildren, and do all that. Well, you know, you wake up and you got four kids and you want them each to have two million dollars, you know, it's gonna, you're going to have to write a really big gift tax check. But if you started 10 years earlier with some of these strategies, you could wake up 10 years later and suddenly that excess return over that hurdle rate has been accumulating in a pool, which now when the, tr when the trustee feels it's right to make available to the kids, 
you can do without paying that toll charge. So how do we do that? Well, there are a number of strategies. The one that's most common right now, uh, and there's an enormous rush to implement them because you know they're on Obama's hit list. Uh, most clients figure if it's on his hit list, it's got to be really good. Um, and that's the grant to a retained annuity trust, the GRAT. Right? So it's sort of a cocktail party talk, that's it's a GRAT. Right? Uh, and basically, very simple, uh, you put assets in a trust, the trust pays you back an annuity for some period of years, and at the end of that period, whatever's left in the trust is set aside in, a, in these lifetime trusts for the family. We set the annuity you get so that its present value equals what you put in. Right? So if you put a million dollars in, the annuity you, that it gets paid to you is on a present value basis worth a million dollars. So did you make a gift? No, you put a million dollar asset in this trust, and you retained an annuity that was worth a million dollars, there's no gift. Right? Now, the present value calculation, the IRS publishes what that number is every month. Right now, it's 3.4%, the lowest it's been in history. Right? So the IRS is assuming that that asset will perform during the period of that trust at an overall return rate of 3.4%. Right? If they're right, well, you'll get everything back. That's the way the math has to work, and there'll be nothing left at the end. That's why there's no gift. But if they're wrong, and that asset performs at 20%, they're gonna, there's going to be money left in that trust at the end of that period that nobody's ever paid any gift or estate tax on. Right? If the asset performs less than 3.4%, you get it all back. This, this strategy has no effect on investment decisions because the annuity is only just paid by giving you back what you put in. So if we take a stock portfolio and we put it in this structure, every year we just move some of the stocks back to the client's personal account to pay that annuity. There are no income tax consequences to the structure. It's invisible from an income tax standpoint. So it's a pure arbitrage play on this IRS published rate. For publicly traded securities, we do them as short as possible. The shortest you can do them is two years. Right? So what we're looking to do, and all our modeling shows, is we, for clients of publicly traded equities portfolio, we will do a separate graph for each asset class. Right? So that if large cap value has a good year, we move that profit off. If international stocks have a bad year, we don't want to stick them in the same structure with all the other assets because the losers will offset the winners. We'd rather have the losers isolated. You get all that back. And what we found is even in those years where the market just bounces around, some things will be doing really well. We'll shift the winners over to the next generation. The ones that didn't do so well will get back and we'll start over at a lower number. So why is there a rush to do this? Well, as I said, it's, it's on Obama's hit list. And the way he's dealing with it is in, in his budget, and in fact, there was a bill passed by the House, the jobs bill, that's now pending in the Senate, that limited grant structures to no shorter than 10 years. Now, the problem with the grant is you've got to live to the end. Right? If you die the day before the trust is to end, it's all back in your estate. 
So when you start going out 10 years, you start to create actuarial risk. That you'll do all this, you'll have built up a fair amount of profit, but then, you know, in nine years and nine months, you know, you get hit by the bus and it's all back in your estate. Two years is nice for two reasons. One, much less actuarial risk, even for our more elderly clients. And secondly, we're able to capture the volatility in those assets. And, you know, you might imagine the ones that the structures we did last March kind of be really good, okay? I mean, they're up, you know, 50, 60%. The ones we did a year earlier than that all failed. And in fact, those clients got basically all those assets back on the first annuity payment and started over again at a lower number. So again, it's purely, and we're not making a client any poorer. They're going to get back everything they put in the trust. We're just going to shift the excess growth. The second way of doing the same thing is I can create a trust for the kids, right? And a client has an asset that's a growth asset, right? And we can sell that asset to the trust for the kids and take back a note, right? What have I done? I've converted the asset to a fixed income asset and moved the real growth asset out of the estate. The intra-family loan rates are the lowest they have been in history. So right now, you can do a nine-year note for like, 2.2%. Well, you know, you probably don't have many assets that you're, you know, long-term growth assets that you expect they're only going to perform at 2.2%. So family business assets, things like that, we're shifting over and converting into an asset that has limited growth so that the family can participate more on the upside. And, you know, the final strategy there uh, is loans. I mean, I said family loan rates are the lowest possible. So we have clients who meeting with their investment advisors all the time, and the advisor says, well, I got this great new, you know, golden adventure fund, right? Well, you're investing in that fund because you anticipate the long-term returns over the next, you know, 10 years are going to be 15, 20%. If you do that in your own portfolio, you got the government as a 50% partner. So why not create the trust for the kids? loan the money to that trust, let it buy the Goldman Venture Fund, and let it earn those returns in excess of your loan rate. The loan rates, as I said, are unbelievably low right now. So again, the client's not any poorer. They'll get their capital back first. They'll get their percentage return back. But if that fund does perform at 15 or 20 percent, that excess accumulation will be sitting there in that trust for the family for when the time is right, able to be made available. Well, it, uh, in most of the cases I've described, you know, family members are the trustees, so you're not paying third-party trustee fees. You have an income tax return. You have, you have an income tax return. But trust income, ta depending on what the assets are, trust income tax returns are generally not that complicated. And 
those assets would have been someplace else that the income from which would have been have to be reported on somebody's return. So there would have been some incremental cost someplace else. Well, it depends on who your accountant is, but there, there is no doubt there is an added cost there. I mean, we, you know, what we found is for the creditor protection aspects of it and the move of these funds out of the tax system, that in, income tax preparation cost is worth it. But, you know, that's a judgment that has to be made in, in, each, in each case. Uh, all right, so, so that's, you know, the sort of basic stage two planning to, again, keep the problem from getting worse. Now, with many of our clients, as I said, you know, part of this process is a real sort of philanthropic objective they want to accomplish. And we, you know, spend a lot of time with clients getting them to sort of focus on their priorities, you know. Uh, and many of them are, you know, so much for the kids, so much for the the institutions that are important to me, uh, if my estate is above a certain amount, maybe splitting the pie beyond that. We try to get them to really focus on what things are important. Sometimes there's a particular charity like Princeton that's important to them and they want to make sure that gets taken care of. There are, there are an infinite number of formulas uh, and ways to do that as part of an estate plan, but it all starts with you know, for clients setting up what's, what's important to them, what are they trying to accomplish, um, and, and where do they want, what, what do they want to go to charity and, and how. Once we get them to focus on that, then we really, as I said, start our job as advisors, uh, is, and, and the plan giving office here at Princeton is, you know, Let's do that as cheaply as possible. I mean, you know, the, the less it costs the family to make a charitable gift, the more generous they can be. Uh, so we are looking to, in a sense, get the government to subsidize as much of that. So, for instance, if a client has a sort of testamentary philanthropic objective they want to accomplish, uh, the first thing we look to use to do that with are their pension assets. Because those are the assets that are worth the least to the family. Right? Because if you've got a you know, 401k or an IRA or, or you know, pension account and you leave it to your kids, right, they pay the estate tax on that asset and they pay income taxes when they take the money out. Right? When you pay two taxes on the same asset, there's not a hell of a lot left over. And if you do the math, in many states, you know, 75% of the account will go to income and debt taxes, and there'll be 25% to spend. And many of our clients will say, there's no way I'm doing that. And if it comes to that, I'd re rather leave 100% of those assets to a philanthropic cause that's important to me if it only costs my kids 25 cents on the dollar. So whenever we have something in the, in the estate plan that's going to leave something to charity, uh, we'll first change the beneficiary designations on their retirement assets to the charity. And then we often in the will will say, you know, I leave X dollars to Princeton uh, minus whatever they get from my pension account. 
so that, and then the, then the difference gets made up from estate assets, because we're trying to do it as efficiently as possible. But pension assets are clearly the, the least expensive to use. Um, the second general rule is um, if you're going to leave something at death to charity, right, um, the, you know, what do you get when you die? You get a death tax exemption, right? You don't get anything now, but when you die, there's less death tax to pay. Well, you know, the government has said, well, if you really mean it, we'll give you all kinds of lifetime benefits if you'll commit to it. Right? And that's where all the plan giving comes in. Right? The government is encouraging people to commit to that testamentary objective now, and if you're willing to commit to it, we'll give you a lifetime tax benefits. We'll give you a lifetime subsidy for doing that. And if you go through the outline later, you'll see, you know, I've stopped like updating that for all the tax rates because I couldn't keep ahead of the governments, you know. Uh, and eventually, those rates are higher than the ones we have now. Don't worry, we'll be there uh, because things are going to get really bad pretty soon. Uh, but, you know, there are all these strategies. For example, charitable remainder trusts, right? You know, what is a charity? You put assets in a trust. The trust pays you an income stream for your lifetime, for your, you and your spouse's lifetime. And when you die or both of you die, whatever's in that trust goes to charity. Right? Well, that's what you were going to do under your will. You were going to leave those assets to charity. So here you've committed to doing that. You said, I've set it aside. It's in this trust. I'll get the income stream. But when we die, it's, I, you know, it's going to charity. Well, what are the benefits you get? Well, first of all, we figure out what the present value of that gift is today. You know, what's the, what did you put in the trust? What's your income stream worth for the rest of your lifetime? Subtract that because you really kept that. The net is a real committed gift to charity. We'll give you an income tax deduction today for that. So you now have immediate income tax savings for something charity won't get until you die. Secondly, the trust itself is tax exempt. So it pays no tax. It's like a pension account. It pays no taxes as it goes. You'll pay taxes on your income stream, which you would have anyway. But now, if you put an appreciated stock, if anybody has any of that left, if you put appreciated stock in there and the trust sells it, there's no capital gains tax. So now you have the government's 15, soon to be 20 percent, uh, working for you for the rest of your life, which you wouldn't have had had you sold that same asset in your, in your personal account. So there again, the government's saying, all right, you know, you, you told your estate planning lawyer you want to leave a million dollars to charity when you die. Um, we'd like you to commit to that. If you do that, you put the million dollars, you know, in this trust, um, we'll give you some income tax benefits now that say it reduces, puts money in the bank for you, and we'll give you this added benefit that you can put appreciated property in there and not have to pay tax on the gain. Gift annuities have a similar thing, where you buy an annuity from a charity. You can buy it with appreciated property and not have to pay capital gains tax right away. You pay it over your life expectancy. And again, the gift portion, the fact that the institution paid you a lower annuity than you would have gotten had you gone to some insurance company, it's a current taxable gift. And you, current tax deductible gift, and you get a deduction today. And you'll see 
you know, in the outline a whole series of examples of that where you can keep an income flow today, get you know, what you need to live, but because you committed to the testamentary gift now, you're out of the system. And so we often match this up. I mean, we have clients who, for example, they might have a fairly significant charitable gift in their will. Let's say they want to leave $5 million to Princeton. And, you know, they have a managed brokerage account, you know, a stock account. What we'll often have is, first of all, the $5 million will change the beneficiary designations on whatever their retirement accounts are to Princeton. And that bequest in the will will say $5 million less whatever Princeton gets from my retirement account. So if there's a million dollars in the IRA, you know, they'd only get $4 million in the will because we'd rather give them the IRA that's only going to be worth $0.25 cents on the dollar to the kids than give them some other asset. Secondly, you know, we'll typically do a charitable remainder trust uh, that's sitting there. And the instructions to the investment advisor is, you know, we shouldn't be paying any capital gains taxes. So when it's time to sell something, move it over to the charitable remainder trust, sell it there. Right? And I'll get, you know, maybe it's a 6% charitable remainder trust, and I'll get my return each year. I'm not, I don't need to spend that capital, because that's the cost of doing it. You get the income flow, but you can't spend the capital. But, you know, the advisor's instructions are, as you've got something that's appreciated, you know, set it aside here in the trust, sell it there, no capital gains tax. I'll continue to get the income flow. And again, the will will say, oh, $5 million to Princeton, minus whatever they get from my pension account, and minus whatever's in my charitable remainder trust when I die. So if over time, between the pension account and the remainder trust strategy, you've been building that up, Princeton might get nothing under the will because they'll have gotten it through these other strategies. The, the final thing that we're seeing a lot of, especially in this environment of very low interest rates, is for larger charitable gifts by will, right, um, there's an alternative to just leaving it outright to charity. So let's take an example, the $5 million example. I leave $5 million to Princeton. Now, I can, assuming, you know, next year, whatever the tax rate is, okay, I know what that costs the family, right? If you got a 45% tax rate, I know leaving, you know, $5 million to Princeton costs the kids, you know, uh, $2 million six or so. Because that's what they would have gotten had they had to pay tax on that $5 million and had, had it left, right? They would get the net tax. So I know what it costs the family. And clients make a judgment. I'm willing to take $2 million six from my family because this gift is important to me for a variety of reasons. Well, there's an alternative to that. There is a, the reverse of a charitable remainder trust is a charitable lead trust. And what it does is it, you put money in a trust and it pays an annuity to the charity for some number of years. And at the end of the trust, whatever is left in there comes back to the family tax free. Okay? I can again set that annuity to the charity so that its present value equals what's in the trust. So let's say I put $5 million in this trust. And let's say it's a 15-year trust. Well, the present value calculation discount rate right now is 3.4%. If I pay a 7% annuity, so I pay $350,000 a year 
to Princeton for 15 years, uh, and, or 20 years, I, you know, a computer program tells you what you have to pay, I'll get the same $5 million deduction I would have gotten had I left the money directly to Princeton. Because the government is assuming, at a 3.4% rate of return, it'll all be needed to pay the annuity to Princeton. But if those assets earn more than 3.4%, there will be money left in that trust at the end of the term, on which nobody's ever paid any tax. That comes back to the family. So a charitable lead trust for a larger gift is the one charitable gift that has an upside for the family with no downside. The worst that happens if the assets don't perform is everything goes to Princeton, which was what was going to happen anyway if you just made the outright gift. But if that trust performs very well over those years, there will be a lot of appreciation in those assets, which at this later stage will all come back to the family. And you know, right now, clients are saying, you know, where the markets are, are, what the historic returns are, if we're looking at a 15, 20 year overall investment horizon, you know, I'm fairly confident over that period of time we can do better than 3.4%. So what does that do? To the extent it does perform better than 3.4%, money will come back, which means you've reduced the cost of that gift significantly for the family. Because we knew the $5 million outright gift cost them $2.6 If rather than $2.6 million, they're going to get some of that back at the end of the lead trust, we've significantly cut down. The, in fact, you can run the analysis. There are some investment returns, you know, 9 10%, which costs the family nothing. They get back so much, they end up in the same place they would have been had, no, had you not made a gift to Princeton. So what we're looking, again, for a lot of these larger gifts is to find a way to do it that's more efficient for tax purposes, reduces the cost to family. In many of these cases, we'll run these numbers at investment assumptions the clients want, and they see the net cost to the family has gone down significantly. What do they do? They give more. And that's why these are strategies that you know, you're lucky here, I mean, I do the planned giving work for institutions all over the country. You know, you have one of the strongest groups here at Princeton. And all I can say is I'd encourage you, as you think through these ideas, to speak, speak with the staff, because they can really help you see whether any of these fit in with your particular situation, uh, think through how the numbers work, whether it fits or doesn't fit, or whether there's a different alternative that fits better with what you're trying to accomplish. Because all these objectives say, you know, you, you have some priority, you have something you want to accomplish, what's the most efficient way to do it? Uh, you know, as Ron said, I was a civil engineer here. And, uh, you know, the thought process is very similar. You know, you have a problem, you know, you have a set of rules, and you want to find the most efficient, elegant solution to that problem, whether it's constructing a bridge or a building. And I still stay in touch with a lot of my classmates from the engineering school, and I say the only difference is, you know, they're not changing the rules of physics every other year. Uh, and, you know, they've got the same problems, they've got the same rules to deal with, you know, they've got more powerful computers than when we were here, but it's basically the same. You know, 
I've got, you know, problems, but they changed the rules, and right now I have no rules. So it's like, you know, what am I going to do next? Uh, but, you know, I, I'd encourage you to use the resources that are here at the university. You've got very talented people that can help you. Thank you very much. And I'll stay around to answer questions. Later. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Frank Mirabello, Princeton Class of 1975 on estate planning during reunions of 2010. For more information about estate planning and charitable giving, please call Colleen Moore at the gift planning office 609-258-6318.